Hey, this is Matt Sorum from Velvet Revolver, The Cult, and Guns N' Roses. And you're listening to Your Morning Coffee with host Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. From Rolling Stone, let's break down the mind-blowing money in Universal Music's IPO. For music business worldwide, welcome to the new record business. Warner Music Group is now generating over $270 million from TikTok, Facebook, Peloton, and other alternative platforms annually. Also for music business worldwide, Hartwick Massach thinks the music industry is putting too much of its money in the wrong places. From media, middle-class artists need niche or niche, not scale. Yes, indeed, folks. This is episode number 59, and we are subtitling it, You're in the money, you're in the money. This is the Your Morning Coffee Podcast. Stand by for transmission. This is London Coffee. Wake up! Your morning coffee is on the air. 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 Standing by. Your morning coffee. The weekly music news. For the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. Now, from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Well, good morning, Jay. So, do you think that, that there's some Warner morning. Music, excuse me, well, not Warner Music, there's some <laughs> Universal Music executives that that woke up with a smile on their face this weekend. Yeah. Big, big week. Music business story of the year. Yeah. And again, you know, we talked about this last week, which is uh, we were there for the rise. We were there for the fall. And here right. it is rising back again like a phoenix from the ashes. Who would have predicted yeah. back in, in 2004 a big way. or so that... No one. No, no one. No, even the, even the most bold-faced optimist would not have said that this is going to happen. Yet here we are, and uh, here we are. Music, uh, music is back in a big way in the financial markets, and there's a yeah. lot of money going around. Lots of money. Yeah. Crazy, crazy week, and it's still developing. Um, before we get going here, um, number one, I'm coming to you from beautiful Saint Petersburg, Florida. Yes, you are. Yeah. It's lovely here. So this is our first kind of remote thing. And one thing I thought was really interesting this week is, and this is so rare, three of the four or store four or so stories that we're covering today were written by one person. And that's, you know, Tim Ingham, yes. uh, the founder and publisher of Music Business Worldwide. And he also writes a regular column for Rolling Stone. So it's a perfect uh, storm. So uh we got to thank Tim Ingham for all of the great work this week. It made our jobs a lot easier. Let's send him a share of the new Universal yeah. Music Group. What do you say? 
Oh, sure. He deserves he it. He deserves it, for crying out loud. <laughs> By the way, every uh, every week, whether he's in Florida or here in Southern California, I get to do this with my good friend Jay Gilbert. If you don't know Jay, what the hell's the matter with you? Because he is the curator of the Your Morning Coffee newsletter, which you most, of course, know is weekly music news for the new music business. And he's also a former executive with Universal Music, Sony Music, and the Warner Music Group. All of those things. Yes, Yes, sir. And my good friend Mike is a longtime host of Sound and Vision Radio, formerly of SST Records, Warner Music, Capital EMI, and Universal Music, and a left-handed musician isn't, to boot. Isn't that weird? A left-handed guitar yeah. player. That's right. And Jay and I could not do this. I mean, literally could not do this nope. without the love and support of our sponsors. And we are eternally grateful to have... Folks that not only are just good humans and great companies, but also uh, companies that Jay and I have worked with and used ourselves yes, for a very long time. Uh, our newest sponsor is T TiVo Music Metadata. We are, of course, sponsored by them, dedicated to bringing order to the chaos of digital music. T uh, TiVo Music Metadata offers obsessively deduplicated artist, album, and song IDs, expert written editorial content and ratings, verified images, weighted deep descriptors, similar artists, band members, and influences, authoritative credits, personalization, discovery, and search APIs, purpose-built solutions for classical music, and a global connected car platform linking broadcast radio with streaming. To learn more, jump over to www.tivo.com slash music. Good work up there at TiVo they are doing. Yeah, we, we love those guys. Um, Your Morning Coffee podcast is also brought to you by our friends at Bandzoogle. Built by musicians for musicians, Bandzoogle is an all-in-one platform that makes it easy to build a beautiful website and EPK for your music. All the features you need for a professional website, they're already built in. Hosting, custom domain name, dozens of fully customizable design templates, tools to sell your music and merch commission-free commission-free crowdfunding and fan subscription features, mailing list tools to grow your fan list, send newsletters, social media integrations, and live support from their musician-friendly team seven days a week. Your Morning Coffee podcast listeners can go to bandzoogle.com, try it for free for 30 days, just use the promo code MORNINGCOFFEE, all one word, and you get 15% off your first year of any subscription. That's bandzoogle.com. Promo code Morning Coffee. And we are also sponsored by HypeBot. Since 2004, HypeBot has chronicled the new music industry and the trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered, consumed, marketed, and monetized. Edited daily by founder Bruce Houghton with help from Owen Davis, HypeBot and sister music and sister blog Music Think Tank are published by Live Music Discovery and Marketing Platform Bands in Town. Yeah, speaking of bands in town, over 55 million live music fans trust bands in town to get personalized concert alerts, recommendations, and messages from their favorite artists. The number one artist services platform connecting over 530,000 artists with their super fans, managers, labels, agencies, and artists across their own dashboard to manage and promote their tour dates across all platforms. There you go. Look at that. So big thanks to our such great friends. sponsors, oh, man. TiVo Music Metadata, uh, Bands in Town, Hypebot, Bandzoogle. Yes, indeed. We love them all. So, Jay, as just before we jump into our story, you know, there, it occurred yeah. to me that there are some people that listen to this podcast. And by the way, thank you, everyone, for listening to this podcast yes. um, that might not exactly 
know the history of Universal Music Group. And it occurred to me as I was mm-hmm. waiting for my computer to reboot that, um, you know, you you were there. You started at MCA. So the Universal Music Group began as MCA Records. Um, Universal was a sub-label. MCA, or, or MCA, MCA Records and also MCA Distribution. And MCA Distribution. And they were, I mean, amongst the smaller Distrib- music and distribution companies at the time. They were yeah, not. Yeah, the joke was Music Cemetery of America. That's exactly right. And uh, was it 1998, I think? Was it 1998 that, that the merge happened, the merger happened uh, between yeah. MCA and then Polygram? Polygram That's was right. rather large. And so the collective yeah. company uh, became the. And Universal by that point was much larger because they had by then oh, right. got Geffen, Geffen Records, Records. Yes. Right. And um, Interscope was part of that deal coming on. So the Universal, well, it was MCA, mm-hmm. then it became Uni, U N I. Oh, that's right. That's and right. And then the merger where things really, where it became the beast was uh, right around 1998 with the Polygram merger. And, of course, you know, one of the, the principal figures behind that that merger uh, was Edgar Bronfman Jr., who was the heir to the Seagram's uh, fortune. And he, yeah. he had aspirations to, uh, to, to basically acquire Universal Studios and the music group at the time. And that was somewhat controversial at the time for him. Uh, and then, of course, as we talked about, I think on the last episode, you know, as as we the, uh, so th- that all happens in 1998. You're there as it's going on. I show yeah. up in 1999 and it's uh, it's happy days because that's that's CDs were just booming. And then ooh, as we head into the, like the 2000s, it starts to get a little hot in here. So there's this thing called yeah. file sharing and trading, and the business looks starts looks really bad. And then the Universal Studios gets rid of the Universal Music Group, and the same thing happened over at Warner's and music. And you talk about that a lot, Michael, and it's a valid point when you bring it up. Is that with Napster and LimeWire mm-hmm. and and all of that illegal file trading and the the dip in CD sales, and it was really prior to iTunes and the monetization mm-hmm. of digital downloads. They were getting rid of a sinking ship in their minds. They couldn't wait to get rid of that sinking ship. <laughs> and so off it went. And uh, Universal was then owned. One of the investors in in that merger was a, a funny company out of France called Vivendi that did not have any entertainment experience. Uh, they had a, a, what was his first name? Messier was his last name. I can't remember uh, his first name. Whatever his first name was. <laughs> we'll look it up. Um there was a uh, yeah this guy wanted to get in the entertainment business and so he invested in it and so they were kind of stuck with that sinking ship after uh after universal pictures kind of said here you take it <laughs> you take it we don't want yeah. it anymore and uh they probably got it for a pretty decent they price they probably too. did yeah um but in, and yet here we are and so it's you know after all of that and that that's you know now so we're talking 22 23 years later since the merger and everything in between uh, with all the doomsday predictions, which, of course, were fully, fully understandable. Uh, here we are. Yeah. Here we are. Yeah. And Universal Music Group is valued now at, give or take, $54, 55000000000 billion after this IPO. Well, that's only you know a percentage of the company yes, is worth that. That's right. Yeah. 
And let's face it, it's really, you know, 85% of the business today is streaming. Mm -hmm. It's it's predictable. And we can kind of look at how it's growing. And it's almost become a math equation at some point. And we see this, you and I talk about this a lot with the hypnosis of the world mm -hmm. and the BMGs and the primary waves. There's this predictability that we haven't had in many, many years. And we certainly Ever. didn't have it with downloads. Ever. Yeah. Never had it. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it was a seasonal business. And I think that's the big difference if you, that's one of the biggest differences. If you started when we did, it was a seasonal business. And boy, yeah. you, you backloaded all of your, all of your biggest releases for the holiday season. Q4. Q4, exactly. And I always, you know, I'm sure you heard the same stories that I did or, or and which I'm sure were true, which is, you know, getting near the end of the year and uh, a certain distribution company wanted to make their money, and they would uh, it, they were they were short for their their goal. So if a phone call was made to let's say Musicland, and they said, "Hey, we're gonna take please order a big order." And of course, things were returnable then, and so they would push place a big order, and a big semi truck would basically go with CDs and park at Musicland. And then it would they'd, turn over to January 1st. They'd make their number, yeah. and then they would return them on Jan, you know, right after. What did we used to call that, Michael? Uh, ship gold, return platinum. <laughs> That's right. More came back than, than you sent out. Uh, so it's a different business. I mean, it's a completely different business. But as we have yeah. talked about, it is now a very, because of that, uh, that consistency and, the, and, and that basically it's the gym membership model, uh, you know that we are now we the music industry is now suddenly very attractive to institution institutional investors, which is why we're Absolutely. having these conversations today. And so, right, and that that dollar amount that you were talking about, or euro amount, whatever you want to call it, you know, that's for sixty percent mm, of right. Universal Music Group. You know, which leads us leads us beautifully to our first piece in Rolling Stone magazine, written by Tim Ingham. Mm -hmm. You're going to hear that name a lot today, and the headline is "Let's Break Down the Mind Blowing Money in Universal Music's." IPO. And I love Tim Ingham's writing. He reminds me a little bit of people like Chris Castle that are kind of a little sassy, you know, <laughs> in their writing. Indeed. Very, very entertaining uh, writer. And this this piece is so well done. And, and this is a, an evolving and dynamic piece. It's, it's changing as we speak. But as you know, 60% um, uh, of Universal um, was kind of uh, chunked off and put up on uh, this, uh, it's it's not the NASDAQ, it's Amsterdam's, uh, what they call Euro Next. But typically, you know, it's, it's a stock market, right? And it, it's, the, the piece talks about how, you know, Paris-based Vivendi, you know, um, is, is putting this out, uh, you know, for shareholders that they have an, an additional 20% of, of UMG that's privately owned by a consortium, you know, and that's led by China's, you know, that big company we talk about all the time, Tencent. So they own 20%. So that doesn't affect that, that 60%. And then another 10% is owned by this investment firm, uh, Pershing Square Holdings. Mm -hmm. So um, it's not the entire, you know, piece of it, but you were talking about the market cap and that's been kind of bouncing around and it hasn't really landed yet. I think at the time of this piece, it was $40 billion. And I think right now it's what, around 54 billion, something like that. Yeah. So it's a, it's, yeah. it's a big number. Yeah. So, you know, as they say, uh, you know, it's, 
is if Universal is worth tons, so are its fiercest rivals. So you know, kind of as they say, all yes. ships rise when this happens. Yes, so suddenly, a rising tide lifts all absolutely. boats. Absolutely. So suddenly there's, and there was a lot of talk about Warner Music Group, um, and they made a couple of key announcements, and their their share price grew four percent uh, on August twenty fifth, mm-hmm. and and so yeah, everybody is kind of rising at the same time. And there's, yeah. it's, it is, it is good times to be a music company and it's great times to be yeah. a senior executive at a music company <laughs> because yeah. yeah, salad days. Yes, exactly. <laughs> now Universal is still the largest music company in the world that has not changed. So they will likely always have the, the highest value, but, um, mm. you know, it's, it is fascinating to see how all of these companies are rising in the interest and it's just, I mean, again, it, it you know, we were there, we were there during the trough and, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. it was, it was, it was depressing in the halls of Universal in those days and, and, and every music company, presumably. Um, yeah, it was challenging because we were trying to, you know, we had come off of the heyday of the CD, the boys band, the boy bands and all the peak of the CD. And then all of a sudden, you know, um, with these illegal file trading and even when we started with some really decent numbers from iTunes, people could just pick off the individual tracks that they yeah. wanted. They didn't have to buy an $18 CD. That's right. And when you're buying something for $1.98, you're not going to see the revenue of something from 1898, of course. And so it was it was a shakeup and I remember this contraction that happened where the the teams that used to be fairly large started it, the tree shook mm-hmm. and the fruit was falling. And it was, you know, musical chairs to see who was was left. And I loved watching it kind of not give up. You know, they held their ground. They looked for other ways to monetize, which we're going to talk about in a minute, mm-hmm. which is absolutely stunning. Um, but in this piece by, by Tim Ingham, as we mentioned, he goes through... Um, you know, it says the, the company's arrival in the public markets has already changed the face of the global music industry. And he points out a few ways how that is. You mentioned one. One is if Universal is worth loads, then so is its fiercest rivals. But the problem with that is when you're doing an IPO, now you're kind of opening up the door to let people look at the books and see how much the executives are making, you know, what, what's the EBITDA, you know, sure. I, you and I talk about ARPU and EBITDA and all of that, right? Favorite so you get to see, yeah, you get to see all those numbers. So that first point, you know, he, he goes into that and, and they kind of compare Warner music group, you know, and as you said, their, their share price grew 4%. But, you know, that that makes their market cap valuation close to a billion dollars within a few hours. So that's good news for them. And also those companies that you and I talk about every week, things like, you know, Hypnosis Song Fund and Believe and Round Hill and, you know, Primary Wave and those that are buying up these rights, they're worth a lot too. Well, and, you know, whenever you launch an IPO, uh, sometimes uh, you get a little tailwind or you get a little boost just because of the timing. And so in this article it mentioned, you know, UMG is floating just as florid industry numbers are being published left, right, and center. UMG's own first half of 2021 reflected year-over-year revenue growth of 17.3% and came with nearly $1 billion EBITDA 
profit margin. Warner's numbers were up 27% year over year in its most recent quarter, and the Recording Industry Association of America, with exquisite timing, just confirmed that the recorded music business in the U.S., the world's largest music market, was up by $1.5 billion. That's 27% if you don't have your calculator out. Uh, in the first half of 2021 versus the first half of 2020. So again, you <clears throat> there's a lot. sometimes there are things that are going on that, that you are, of course, have a little bit of control over but just might be happening and that was that kind of set the table as we headed into last week and yeah it's that's it's crazy that that's happened as you mentioned in such a really relatively short span of years in 2005 warner music group you know facing up to the damage being wrought upon it by napster and piracy you know for for the first time, it floated on the New York Stock Exchange and had a rocky opening day. You know, failing to hit 3.4 billion. Then, right, mm-hmm. uh, Warner Music Group's market cap peaked at uh, peaked at 3.9 uh, billion. Okay, so just 16 years later, Warner Music Group is worth more than five. Oh, I, my my thing just moved. Is worth more than five times as much as it was back then. UMG is almost certainly worth more than ten times what Warner was in 2005. That's not that long of a time period no. for those kind of gains. And you're th- I know what you're thinking out there in podcast line. You're thinking, but what about my friend Sir Lucian Grange? I'm worried about <laughs> Lucian because, you know, did he do okay in this? And, uh, really worried. Yeah. And I know Jay and I had talked about this, and, and we were concerned, of course, as well. We don't want to see him in a soup mm-hmm. line or, you know, having to refinance his mortgage. So anyway, so hope here it goes. Okay. I hope he's okay. Uh, so here it goes. Uh, uh, Lucian Grange is getting a $150 million bonus for his troubles post-listing, plus one per... This is the, this is the interesting thing. Yes. Plus one percent of whatever valuation Universal achieves above $50 billion. So there this is. is this is parenthetical here. So if UMG hits a $40 billion market cap, Grange will get an additional $100 million. If it hits $50 billion, he'll get another $200 million, and so on. Which it and looks so like on. it's going to. Yes, it does. Exactly. This is in addition to a bonus Grange had already received this year of approximately $20 million related to the acquisition earlier this year of 10% of UMG by a consortium, as we mentioned, led by Tencent. And in addition to other bonuses related to Pershing Square's recent buyout of 10% of UMG. So, in short, there's a good chance that Grange will pocket bonuses from UMG worth uh, over $200 million this year. And it's possible that could be uh, $300 million. It's good to be king, Jay. Wow. You know, it's... It really, you know, we'll move on to some other stories here, but this this thing is really the story of the year, and everybody's buzzing about it, uh, buzzing about it, and that's because you know, as recently as like 2013, you know, three years into Lucian Grange's you know reign as CEO, UMG was worth somewhere in the region of 8.5 billion, mm-hmm. right? And since then, under his leadership, the value of Universal Music Group has increased. Five times, you know, even as recently as four years ago, UMG was valued at half of what it's worth today. So, you know, the harder we work, the luckier we get. That's right. That's right. And they did mention, you know, there there was some uh, kind of risks that he that he was really wanted to be uh, he wanted to to take. Uh, one of which was buying EMI Music for 1.9 billion back in 2012 in the pit of financial uncertainty for record labels, as they said. Um, 
so, you know, he did take some chances. But, of course, like any successful person, sometimes you just have the luck of timing. And, you know, timing. The, the timing or timing. Yes. <laughs> so it is. Uh, yeah. I stole that from you, by the That's way. That's right. That's right. That's right. So uh, and and uh, don't forget Vivendi. They've got a chap. We, we couldn't remember the guy's name who was there when we were there. Something with Messier was his last name. But anyway, uh, French media mogul Vincent Bol. Bolore, uh, who is Vivendi's biggest single shareholder, uh, he uh, he's going to come on. Let me see. Uh, uh, his group will end up with more than seven billion dollars in UMG stock. So yeah, it's good to be. Did I mention it's good to be king, Jay? Yeah, I didn't. I wasn't aware of him. And this last week, I called Glenn Peoples over at Billboard, and I said, "Who? I've never heard of this guy." Bolore, I think it's seven. Yeah. Vincent Bolore. Yeah. No, no, Bolloray. Bolloray. And he's got yeah. like seven billion. His group has seven billion in Universal stock. I, you know, we, you and I follow this stuff as closely as anyone. I, I don't know. I'd, I'd never heard of him. I had neither. Congratulations either. to uh, Vincent Bolloray uh, <laughs> and your group. That's quite impressive. <laughs> That's right. So, anyway, that is, uh, it's yeah, good for Universal. Yeah. Good for the folks that that um, you know that had the vision to hang in there and. But then again, you know, I think, um, and we've talked about this a little bit as well, they didn't really have any choice back in the day when things were quite dire. You know, yeah. they they hung in there because there was really no other choice. It wasn't like people right. were falling out of the out of the weeds to buy your yeah, company. It was damage control exactly. to a, a, a lot, a lot of degree. And, and today, which leads us beautifully into our next story, it's a different music business now. It's not necessarily just about sales, streams, and downloads. It's not all about that now. There's so many other revenue sources. And what I love about this next piece, and again, written by Tim Ingham, well played, sir. This is for Music Business Worldwide. And the headline is, Welcome to the New Record Business. Warner Music Group is now generating over $270 million, ready, for TikTok, from TikTok, Peloton, Facebook, and other quote-unquote alternative platforms annually. And this has been a hot topic in your morning coffee and on this podcast that in addition to sales, streams, and downloads, there's the real revenue is being made in places like publishing, right? Mm -hmm. We talk about that quite a bit. It's, we talk about experiences. Mm -hmm. We talk about sync licensing, but a few things that we don't talk about too much are these recent deals where there are licensing fees paid by places like Peloton Bikes. Um, from Facebook, from TikTok, and it's not nothing. I mean, in this headline, two hundred and seventy million dollars for Warner Music Group, and that's one music. That's group, right. right. And so they, you know, to, according to Music Business Worldwide's calculations, suggest that this that the sector is already worth a billion dollars in annual revenue for the global music rights industry. So they do do a, a fair amount of of. Um, of kind of piecing together, you know, taking lots of information, kind of coming up with that number, but uh, it's a big number. It's a really yeah. big number. And again, we talked about um, getting the attention of institutional investors who historically yeah. were not interested in this world. They really yeah. are now because of this. So, you know, it was it was um, 
uh, Stephen Cooper, who is who is the or Steve Cooper, who is the the head of Warner Music Group, and this is kind of referring, and we talked about this back when he 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 was uh, it was an interview at the Goldman Sachs uh, event back back in uh, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, their commu communicopia, it's called. There you go. That's right. And you know my <laughs> in, my invitation to uh, communicopia. Yeah, I missed that communicopia. Got and lost. I used to work for Stephen Cooper's team. That's right. You know when I was at Warner Brothers for five years, and I worked for his team, and I can tell you. They're smart yeah. and they work hard and they use the numbers and, and all of that. And I'll let you finish your point about the communicopia thing because I want to bring up something that uh, I've learned from Stephen Cooper. But please finish Yeah, so he, he mentioned that two, $235 million a year in alternative offerings that create new use cases for music. Um and he also confirmed that the same uh, at the same time that revenue are providing cash at proportionate rate to to WMG's music publishing business. So we're talking about the recorded music industry and the publishing business. And he was saying back a couple of weeks ago, we believe that this intersection between gaming, fitness, and social digital uh, will drive substantial revenues in the future. The alternative That's offerings, the exactly. He called out Facebook. What she said has begun to utilize music in new and interesting ways over the last couple of years, as well as TikTok, Peloton, Roblox, for their material Roblox. for their material contributions to that $235 million number, yeah. plus other platforms. That was one we didn't talk about. Um, Roblox was another right. one. That's right. And we saw Lil Nas X do his thing there, and we're seeing a lot of artists now engaging in that gaming platform. Um, and he said, he said back then, he said, you've got to keep in mind that in all of these areas, metaverses and gaming, live streaming, utilization of avatars, NFTs are all in their infancy in terms of their relationship with and payment to music right holders, rights holders. But many of them have a potential to become the next global platform. And in fact, many of them are already moving in that direction. So, so this is, again, you know, we talk about that sort of you know, good timing on the part of Universal. So all of this is kind of happening. And here he was talking about that. And yeah. so it's uh, yeah, it's a lot of it's, money. It surprises people that there's that much revenue in things that aren't sales, streams, downloads. Right. And the point I wanted to make about Stephen Cooper, um, I didn't work directly for him, but I worked for his teams. Mm-hmm. Um, I handled Amazon uh, business for WIA ADA. Um for both the physical and digital. So we kind of got to see both verticals. And what I learned there is how uh, analytical and how smart, but more importantly, he has always been one of those visionary, and I don't throw that around very frequently, but someone who looked ahead at the business. You know, according to this uh, Tim Ingham piece, Stephen Cooper claimed, you know, that his firm has been, quote, early to the game in terms of Warner leveraging these alternative platforms with strategic partnerships and investments. And that is true. I've seen it happen. When I was there, I think they partnered with Deezer, Mm. you know, and that was like, I don't know, eight years ago. You know, so for argument's sake, let's say that Warner is currently eating up a full 25% of the yearly money coming from alternative platforms, you know, for these recorded music plus publishing industry. So that's $273 million in Warner's case. That would still mean that Facebook, TikTok, Peloton, you know, and all of those are already a billion dollar annual revenue generator for wider global music rights music today. And that's the point yeah. here is that we have to stop thinking about this simply as how many streams am I getting? Mm-hmm. How many vinyls? See what I did there? How many vinyls did I sell? That's right. right. That sort of thing. <laughs> so fantastic, fantastic uh, piece. And I'm glad that uh, 
you know, uh, Tim Ingham was able to kind of pull these facts and figures out of, you know, because it's not all about universal music this week because that story overshadowed everything, mm -hmm. that first story. It certainly did. But I thought this was very important to the industry going forward, all these different revenue streams. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's jump over to the next one. Uh, this is also from Biz Music Business Worldwide. And uh, uh, Hartwig... And Tim Ingham. And Tim Ingham, exactly. And Tim Ingham. <laughs> uh, Hartwig uh, Masich. Masich. Who yep. thinks the music industry is putting too much of its money in the wrong places. And let me bring that one up. Uh, and while you're doing that, yeah. let me just say that he's one of those guys that I follow, like Stephen Cooper, who is a t usually a little bit ahead of the curve. You know, some of these people think that record company executives are dinosaurs. They don't know what's going on, whatever. That is the farthest thing from the truth. Trust me when I tell you that these folks are looking at around the corner to the future. They're investing in some of these platforms. <clears throat> They're engaging with them. And this is just another example of this. And I've read this before, and we can go through this piece, but this is, you know, he's from um, Hardwick, Massachusetts, you know, from BMG. I've heard many times that you want to know what's going on, you know, in the future, listen to what Hartwig is saying. And don't forget, this is the new BMG, not to be confused with the old BMG. <laughs> and if you were, if you uh, didn't start when we did, this is, this is a different BMG. This is kind of a, uh, a it's the same parent company, Bertelsmann, but they had right. divested themselves of the original BMG music group back several years ago, whenever they did that. And so this is kind of the new one. And yeah. um, and it's a multifaceted company, it is. right? I mean, they do a lot of different things. They're also a label that's distributed through ADA, which is part of Warner Music Group. But they, they do things that, primary wave does they're very involved in catalog and exploiting and i mean that in the best possible way things like iron maiden for example mm -hmm. they're a powerhouse they are and so when we talk about when when he talks about in this article um uh music industry is putting too much of its money in the wrong places it's really kind of we're talking about the difference between catalog and frontline artists and so they asked him, said, what's your latest view on the amount of investment, the amount of focus the industry at large puts towards, put, put towards frontline releases versus catalog? Do you see it changing? And he said, logic would suggest it should change, but we see no sign of it. For us, it's a question of balance and ensuring that where you invest, it makes sense on a long-term basis. Frontline investment is actually getting more aggressive than it ever did before, and yet if you look at some industry numbers, catalog is heading towards 70% market share on stream. Mm -hmm. So as he says, it yep. raises the question, why the hell is so much money being applied to that remaining 30%? That is the frontline, and he's talking about kind of frontline A&R. He said, yeah, and let me just interrupt yeah. you just for a quick second. For those that don't know the difference between frontline and catalog, the kind of the technical drawing line is that, you know, once you reach 18 months, it becomes catalog. Right. Now there's, there's all sorts of different rules and things and the way that people perceive this, but give or take frontline are those new releases that come out. And the problem with our music business is that we put so much focus on developing these artists and, and getting them to street date. And then, but if you look at the actual revenue to your point with 75% of it, 65, 75% of it, give, give or take the distri distributor, mm -hmm. that's coming from catalog. And that's a, that's a problem for the business only because if you're hypnosis 
or even BMG at some point, you've got a wealth of this catalog and it's generating a ton of revenue. But when you go to the digital service providers, Spotify, Apple Music, Pandora, Deezer, Amazon, they are excited about bringing in new customers. And how do they do that? Well, everybody's got the catalog. They do that with, you know, being first to the game with some of these new developing, you know, the Biebers and Billie Eilish and Chainsmokers and Drakes and all, all of that of the world. Um, but what I like to have them consider is that one of our weaknesses as an industry is catalog on streaming, for example. Mm-hmm. And and someone explained it to me one time at a DSP in that when before something comes out, before the music is released, you know more it as the record company or the artist. You know more about it than anyone. You know what the drivers are. You know what the press plan is going to be. You know if there's going to be a tour, if there's any sync licenses, if it's going to be any games. You know everything about your music. But the moment you release that music, now they know more about it than you do. Mm-hmm. They know who's streaming it, what device they're on. Yeah how old they are, what country they are. Did they put it in their own personal library? Did they skip the intro? I could go on for hours, but you know what I'm saying. So their catalog is one of those areas where for the rights holders, they get it and it's generating revenue and we know all about that. But when it comes to practicality, when it comes to um, retail, when it comes to streaming, especially, we haven't figured out a way to really fully exploit that and use that to our advantage. Well, and and as as he mentioned in this, you know, not only <clears throat> is it is it brutally competitive in the in the new artist categories and these, you know, new releases basically. But you've got, you know, you've got what is the number that we've been using these days for It's about 70,000 plus a day and about f- uh, half a million a week. Yes. So, you've got a lot of stuff just flooding into the market that is trying to gather people's attention. And it's an ex- and seventy million at aggregate. That's right, and it's an expensive ball game, and so he's so you know he's basically saying new music will always be important to us, and we're good at it. We have had incredible sex, success with certain artists, uh, and we are one hundred percent committed to investing in new artists. But it has to be proportionate. We see enormous amounts of money on the publishing side being targeted at that small fifteen percent fraction of the market. It's astonishing, and in the recorded business, songs that get some traction on TikTok are getting five or six million dollar advances that's obviously still where some in the industry think their future lies and then he says good luck (laughs) good luck (laughs) well thank you very much for that um yeah but yeah so it's you know they again and and they are uh, they're competing with the likes of of primary wave and all these folks so they kind of came into this and they're a very aggressive acquirer of a lot of these catalogs and they're in that Absolutely. space without a doubt but it's interesting yeah. to see someone as you said who was who was very prescient in this industry talking about you know that super competitive 30 percent or 25 percent, whatever it is and how yeah. they want to be pragmatic about it and not insane yeah. about it in in his mind that that people other labels are being a little crazy about it in terms of their investments and their their likely returns yeah, good point. Yes, yes, yes. So this it, it is again fun to read his kind of observations and takes on certain things. Yeah, um, I encourage people to just Google him and look yeah. at interviews and places where he's spoken at industry conferences. I always look forward to um, listening to his views, and like a lot of these folks, he, well, I shouldn't say a lot. Like a handful of these people we're talking about today. 
he's a little bit ahead of the curve, I think. I think so, too. Absolutely. So let's move on to the next article. Jay, what do you say? Yeah, this is from Midia. Uh, we love Midia. We um, Keith Jopling works over there. He's a friend of mine. I really dig his Song Sommelier you know, playlists. Um, um, I talk to him once in a while. Uh, he writes some really good uh, pieces. Mark Mulligan, uh, who wrote this piece, I briefly met him at the Music Tectonics conference, and you know he's he's like a rock star, you know, in this world. Uh, I love his analysis. Um, this particular piece is called "Middle Class Artists Need Niche, Not Scale," and it's fascinating how he talks about how the superstar artist has their you know ecosystem. The developing artist has their ecosystem, but this is really more about the middle class, and I hadn't thought of it before because there's one line in here that really jumped out. If there's one line that I will remember for a while from this piece is he talks about some things that we'll go into, but he says there is no increase that could transform the outlook for most of these creators without potentially breaking the entire streaming economy. And this is what I'm hearing from very smart people that everybody who complains that, oh, well, streaming doesn't pay enough. And we always talk about the mistake that people make that it, you know, it doesn't pay the artist, it pays the rights holders. We won't get into that. But what Mark is pointing out here is something that analysts have pointed out to me. And that is that, you know, we can't pay out what you're thinking. It would break the system. Mm-hmm. A stream isn't worth a download. A download isn't worth a CD. A CD isn't worth vinyl, and so on. But I'd like to dig into this because he talks about what what we can do. Yeah, exactly. Well, and as he says, you know, whatever whatever the number you have in your brain is that that like again like a middle class kind of artist should be making with streams. If it, even if it gets doubled to what they're making now, if it gets tripled, if it gets quadrupled, it's still not that much money. And, nope. and that would cripple the entire system, basically. It just wouldn't work after that. The numbers don't work. You know, it just, That's it right. just messes it up. And we're not condoning that no, or not at pl- all. placing any judgment. It just is what it is. Yes, exactly. So, so you know, it kind of starts with that sort of concept. No matter what, again, even if it's five times the amount they're making in streaming right now, they're still not making that much money. So, uh, you, you know, you've got to get, you've got to kind of rethink how you're doing it and what is the best kind of that's the point. Yes. Rethink what you're doing it because the the second kind of uh, paragraph in this piece, the, the headline is streaming income is always going to be different from sales income. You're comparing apples to chainsaws, right? right? One of Daniel X's Spotify ambitions is to create and empower a new quote unquote middle class of artists. You know, it, it's like the irony of the middle class is that it, it's the least well served, you know, by streaming. And, and, and here's why. In the old world, a middle class of, you know, let's say a five person band sell 50,000 copies of an album, you know, a year and let's say for $10 a piece. And that's like $35,000 each. In streaming, this group might generate 10 million streams in a year that would result in $7,000 each. You know, so think about that. You're, you're going from, you know, $35,000 to $7,000. And we have to look at these other revenue streams, you know, like experience. You know, we talk about experiences and merch and touring and sync and and hopefully getting a piece of these Peloton things we mm-hmm. talk about and Facebook and TikTok and all of those alternative sources. And he he talks about monetizing the niche, not scale. 
So rather Boom. than break streaming, an alternative attempt uh, at Resolve would be to focus on finding an artist's core fans, the ones who really care, and selling them products and experiences. With this approach, middle-tier artists would be able to replicate the same sort of income flows as the old sales models. So, you know, it and we've, we've talked about this in various uh, articles over the over the last year that we've been doing this podcast, which is, you know, you've and it's the challenge, of course, is it's it's there's not a there was a sort of a super broad template, which is monetized niches, not scale. But once you get below that, it so much depends on very specific things that that you might have that another artist doesn't have. And so this is where it gets complicated for artists, which yeah. is, yeah, there is no one fits all kind of thing we're talking about here. No, you have to figure no. that out. Yeah. Yeah, he, he talks about how, you know, this isn't about replacing streaming. This is about complementing it, you know, by bringing, uh, you know, bridging that income gap. Yeah. You know, for this middle class, artists need to start thinking about streaming more like radio, you know, in other words, a tool for growing fan bases, which then they can monetize elsewhere. And I know people don't want to hear that, but that's the harsh reality. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, if, if, you're, uh, if you're not thinking about this... <laughs> then you really need to be thinking about this because it's, I mean, it's not going to change. You know, the, the streaming is never, and again, as we, as he points out in the article, even if streaming did change in terms of the payouts, call whatever the number, the multiplier you want to, you want to type in, let's just say it wouldn't collapse the industry, but you would be making five times more in, in streaming than you are now. Still not going to, yeah. still not, you're still not talking about enough money. So you do need to kind of start thinking again about these niches and how you monetize those. Yeah, and, and exactly. fill in that yeah. revenue gap. Yeah, and we've been talking a lot about streaming and that remuneration number we keep talking about. And, you know, in the UK, they've been investigating it. And before we, we say goodbye, I really want to talk about kind of the findings of that DCMS report. You and I have been reporting on it. You know, the DCMS is the Culture for Media and Sport Committee over in the UK. And they made some recommendations about fixing streaming, but they weren't, you know, no one's bound by those decisions. Mm -mm. They turned it over to this thing called the CMA, which is the Competition and Markets Authority. And you know, no legislative action has been taken. And now it's like there's a great, you know, piece again by Tim Ingham, yeah. <laughs> Music Business Worldwide. And the headline is UK government takes no legislative action following major bashing report into music industry streaming economics. But what I what just cracked me up is there's this picture of Spider-Man, you know, pointing at Spider-Man in the article, <laughs> you know, basically, uh, you know, they're saying, well, anyway, you know, Boris Johnson and the company's response to the recommendations that these big, bad majors, you know, they need to be referred to the CMA that I just talked about, the Competition and Markets Authority. But the CMA is pointing back at the DCMS and saying, we're busy. Yeah. We got stuff to do. You guys handle this. No, 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 no. You guys need to take care of this. So people ask me all the time, like, you know, what's going on with that UK parliamentary, you know, the DCMS thing? Uh, not, not a lot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's not, and this, you know, again, it's it's easy to sort of identify some of the problems, but boy, when you, it's like, okay, now you got to, now you got to pick up the shovel and jump into the hole it's, and start digging. Yeah. It's easy to complain about yeah. stuff. What are you going to do to fix it? Right. And, and, and so we sit and, and it is what it is. That's right. And, and likely not going to have any meaningful. Changes. I don't know if there's a easy answer to this. Well, there is. I mean, we, yeah, it, it, 
I get, I want songwriters to be paid more. I want sidemen to be recognized. I want more revenue, but I think it comes down to, you know, we, if the rights holders is are, are making a lot of new revenue, how is that split? What is the transparency? That's where I think the focus should be is, you know, as Henry Droz used to say, it's not about the money, Michael. It's about the money, That's right? right? Yeah. You follow the money. And if you've got some transparency there, then I think people calm down a little bit. But when there are old record company contracts being used for new technologies, that's always a mess. You know, I just think we, as an industry, we need to do better at educating ourselves. We need to do better at transparency. And then I think things will improve because the revenue, you know, that you get from streaming downloads, which don't happen much anymore at all. And sales, we talk about vinyl being a premium, things like that, right? Mm -hmm. um, there's so much misinformation out there uh, about it that I think the, the, the DCMS had their hearts in the right place. They interviewed, you know, DSPs, they interviewed record companies, they interviewed artists, managers, distribution. That was great. But there's no teeth to anything that right. they did. And this article is politely saying, what a waste of time. Yeah. And there's that. And there's that. <laughs> well, on that note, so. Jay, we do need to wrap up episode number 50. Now, before I forget, after we after yeah. we stop the record, uh, text me Lucien Grange's contact, please, because I need to reach out to him and... I need a new car. Okay. I need a new car. Yeah. And I, he's, he's sitting I, I will, on a bunch of cash. I'll get right on that. I really appreciate I'll get that. Right on that. Hey, we yeah. do want to thank everyone for listening into this episode. We uh, we recognize that you have many choices to listen to podcasts. And uh, the fact that you are sure here do. listening to us gives us great pleasure and joy and great appreciation. So thanks for listening in. We certainly appreciate that. And of course, thanks to our wonderful, wonderful, wonderful sponsors, uh, Banzugo, Hypebot, Bands in Town, and our mus uh, our newest TiVo Music Metadata. Without yeah, all thanks, that, guys. We, we appreciate not. it. Oh, my goodness. We really appreciate it. And so, Jay, let us say toodaloo. And thanks for listening, everyone. This has been episode number 59 of the Your Morning Coffee podcast. We will see you next week. You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know.